grab it and open with me to John chapter 15. Our text this morning is finishing uh, what we began last week, Jesus' discourse on the vine and the branches. And so today we're going to look at verses 9 to 17 uh, in John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. I hope you've turned there. I hope you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that, you have, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks, and we want to be a people who listen. So we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit now, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, so that we would not only understand your word and believe it, but that we would obey it by faith. And thus bring glory to your name and show to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. Father, build your church here through your word. Father, please prove faithful to your word. You promise us that your word does not come back void to you. And we stake our hope on your faithfulness, God. Come now and bear fruit, Father, we pray. Please keep me from error. Please give us discernment as a congregation so that we would hold fast to the truth and thus be saved in the day of Christ's return. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Amen. Last week, from John 15, we considered how union with Christ is the greatest grace given to us in the gospel. Not only are we saved by Christ from the wages of sin, but we are also united to Christ so that we share in every spiritual blessing. This truth is wonderfully expressed in Jesus' teaching here in this chapter. He is the vine and we are the branches. In Christ, God is building his new covenant people. And by uniting us to Christ, God bears much fruit in our lives to the glory of his name. That was last week. Every 
grace in the gospel. Forgiveness, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption. Every grace in the gospel is ours because we are united to the true vine, to to Jesus Christ. Today's passage carries on with that same truth, but from a slightly different perspective. In today's verses, our union with Christ is described in terms of its outward effects in our lives. Christ bears fruit in us, and that fruit then transforms us so that our lives become the testimony of Jesus Christ and His power and His grace and His mercy to the world. That's really a remarkable dynamic when you think about it. Our lives transformed in Christ... And then from that transformation, our lives becoming testimony to Christ. That's the connection that I want us to think about this morning in in today's study. Transformation leading to testimony. If you wanted a one-sentence summary of the sermon, here it is. Because of union with Christ, our transformed lives testify to who Christ is and what He's done. Because of our union with Christ, our transformed lives testify to who Christ is and what He has done. Transformed for testimony. That's the dynamic today. Now, why is that dynamic so important? Well, consider the context again of this passage. Jesus is in the midst of the farewell discourse The cross is quickly approaching and Jesus will soon depart from this earth for glory. In light of that, how will the world see that Jesus is the true vine? The one in whom God is building his new covenant people. The answer is through the vine's branches. That's how the world will see the vine. It's through the branches. As Jesus' disciples abide in him and bear much fruit, the world receives testimony of the truth. The world sees the truth in the branches. As Christians obey Christ and love one another, the reality of the gospel is made visible in us and through us. In that sense, the farewell discourse, which is where we are in John, the farewell discourse is not only intended for our comfort, it's also intended to equip us, to teach us, to train us, so that we will live faithfully until Jesus' return. So today we're going to think about this dynamic of transformed for testimony. That's what we want to meditate on today. And we're going to do so from three perspectives. In what ways does Christ testify to the truth of himself through our transformed lives? That's what we're going to think about from three perspectives. So let's consider each one in turn. We're going to start in verses 9 to 11. Christian obedience testifies to Christ's love. That's the first aspect of testimony. Christian obedience testifies to Christ's love. It's very clear in John 15 that Jesus wants his disciples to bear spiritual fruit. This was arguably the entire point of Jesus' metaphor on the vine and the branches. Spiritual life is found only in Christ, and therefore, as believers... We must abide in Christ in order to bear fruit. The verse we ended with last week, verse 8, 
emphasizes this point so clearly. Look, look just one verse up, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's Jesus' desire. That's his goal. That our lives would bear fruit by abiding in him. In verse 9, however, Jesus adds a new dimension to abiding in him. And this new dimension focuses on love. Look again, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Friends, that's a remarkable verse. That is a remarkable verse. Jesus Christ loves his people in the same way that the Father loves the Son. The love of the Father for the Son is the same kind of love that the Son has for us. That's a remarkable statement. We could spend the rest of this morning just thinking about this verse and we wouldn't get to the bottom of it. I mean, just think for a moment of how the Father loves the Son and what that means for us. The Father loves the Son with an eternal love. In eternity past, before anything existed, the Son was the object of the Father's delight. And for eternity future, the Father will continue to love the Son in the same way. Verse 9 means that the Son of God loves us with that same kind of eternal love. Before the foundation of the world, the Son loved His church. He loves us with an eternal love. The Father loves the Son with a faithful love. Nothing can sever the Son from the love of the Father. Nothing can weaken the Father's love for the Son. In the same way, the Son of God faithfully loves His people so that nothing can separate them from His love. Nothing. The Father loves the Son with a perfect love. There is nothing lacking in the Father's delight in His Son. There is no aspect of the Father's love that could get stronger. God has no room to improve when it comes to loving His Son. There's no aspect that could get stronger or develop more fully. The Father's devotion to and pleasure in His Son is perfectly complete. In the same way, verse 9 says, the Son perfectly loves His people. There is no deficiency in the love of Christ. There is no imperfection in the love of Christ. There is no lack in the love of Christ. There will never be a point in which Christ loves you any more because He can't love you any less. The Son loves His people in a complete and perfect way. I told you we could spend the whole morning on this. We just scratched the surface. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus says. To be a Christian, in in a very real sense, is to be the recipient of divine love. The kind of love that is shared between the Father and the Son, and now the kind of love that unites us to the Son by faith. And as Christians, we're called to abide in this love. Notice the commandment that ends verse 9. What does Jesus want you to do in verse 9? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Last week, we heard the call to abide in Christ and to have His words abide in us. And now Jesus tells us to abide in His love. Remain in that love. Dwell in that love. Don't move on from that love. The point is that Christ's love 
for his people is the defining mark of our identity. Who are we as Christians? Who are we? We are the people whom Christ loves. That's who we are. And we must remain in that love, Jesus says, verse 9. Abide in my love. So before we go on, if you're a Christian this morning, how often do you reflect on the love of Christ for you? If you're a Christian today, how often do you reflect on the love of Christ? You know, we teach our, we teach our little kids the song in Sunday school, Jesus Loves Me. And then sadly, we tend to forget that song as we get older, don't we? Why is that? If you're a Christian today, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you, if you're a Christian, it's good for your soul to remember Jesus loves me. It's good for your soul to remember that. Because that's where we daily dwell. That's where we are to remain. That's where we abide. In the perfect love of Christ for his church. So how do we do that? The commandment in verse 9 is to abide in his love. How do we do that abiding? How do we dwell in Jesus' perfect, eternal, faithful love? Jesus gives you the answer in verse 10. You don't have to look very far. Look at verse 10. How do we abide in Jesus' love? If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love. Obedience is the pathway to remaining in the love of Christ. Obedience. When we obey Christ by faith, we experience again and again the joy of communion with the Savior. And Jesus himself is our example in this way of life. Notice the last phrase in verse 10. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We just noted in verse 9 that the Father loves the Son with an eternal, faithful, perfect love. And now in verse 10, we learn that during Jesus' earthly life, he abided in his Father's love through obedience. As Jesus obeyed his Father, he experienced again and again and again the communion of the Father's love. How can, how can we illustrate this? Well, there's no better illustration than the life of Christ himself. Think for a moment of that agonizing night in Gethsemane that we're going to study soon here in John's Gospel when Jesus is praying there in the garden. Think of Jesus as he's praying in Gethsemane for God's will to be done. You can picture him there with his sweat like great drops of blood as he is asking if it's the Father's will that this cup would pass from him but then praying, not what I will, but what your will be done. What is sustaining Jesus in that dark night in the garden? What is fueling his obedience to the Father, an obedience that is going to cost him his life? What's fueling that? The answer, friends, is the love of the Father. Through through the act of obeying the Father... Jesus knew and experienced and abided in the Father's love. As he submitted himself to the Father, the love of the Father, which is perfect, eternal, faithful, unchanging, the love of the Father sustained the Son as he obeyed. 
Friends, that same dynamic is how obedience works in our lives. When we submit to Jesus' word and obedience, the love of Christ meets us in that obedience and it nourishes our soul so that we continue to obey. This is a different perspective on obedience, isn't it? I'll be honest with you, I'm afraid that far too often Christians conceive of obedience to Christ as as spiritual drudgery. Kind of the way that kids think about eating their vegetables. Right? I mean, yes, I know that obeying Christ is good for me, but I don't really like it. I think that's how a lot of Christians view obedience as some kind of spiritual health food that we don't really like but we know is good for us. But Jesus corrects us in this verse, doesn't he? He corrects us. Faithful obedience is not drudgery. It's the pathway to abiding in Christ's love. Obedience is anything but drudgery. It's the fuel for the Christian's life. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 11 to make sure that we don't have that mistaken idea of obedience. Look again at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. What things? These these commandments that I'm calling you to obey. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Faithful obedience to Christ completes our joy. That's Jesus' point. Do you remember that wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer to the Hebrews is telling us why Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to the cross? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For the joy that was set before him He despised the shame, endured the cross, and is seated now at the right hand of God. That's stunning, friends. As Jesus walked the road up to Golgotha, in his mind, he would have been thinking to himself, I'm walking the road to joy. Yes, there was sorrow and pain and anguish, but that road of obedience led to the fulfillment of joy, knowing that the Father's love was so completely and so fully being worked out that nothing could separate Christ from that love as He obeyed the Father. Brothers and sisters, that's how Jesus calls us to live. So I don't want to sound too simplistic here, but do you want to know lasting joy? Jesus calls you to obey Him by faith. Do you want to experience again and again the love of God in Christ for you? Then submit your life to Jesus' commandments and obey Him by faith. Christian obedience, properly understood, is not drudgery. It's not earning our salvation. It's not pacifying some angry deity in the sky. Now, Christian obedience offered in faith is love experienced and joy completed. I can't give you any greater motivation to obey God than this. Love experienced and joy completed. When we live this way, friends, when we live like that, faithfully obeying Christ, when we live that way, we testify to the world for the love of Christ to us. When we live lives of faithful obedience, we put verse 9 on display. Please don't miss this point. Our obedience does not earn Christ's love. 
By obedience, we abide in the love that Christ has freely given. Don't get the order mixed up. Verse 9 comes before verse 10. Christ's love for us, verse 9, comes before our obedience to Christ, verse 10. We don't obey in order to be loved. We obey because we are loved. It's a huge difference there. That huge difference is the gospel. (laughs) That's why we can say that obedience testifies to the world for the love of Christ. A Christian growing in obedience testifies to the world of the transforming power of Christ's love. How powerful is the love of Christ? So powerful, it can take rebels and turn them into obedient followers. That's what I mean when I say obedience testifies to the love of Christ. It shows the world how deep, how enduring, how powerful, how effective, how gracious the love of Christ is. It changes us so that we obey Him. This emphasis on love leads directly into the second perspective on testimony in this passage from verses 12 to 14. Perspective number two, Christian love testifies to Christ's sacrifice. Christian love testifies to Christ's sacrifice. We've spent the last several minutes focusing on the call to obey Jesus' commandments. That's how we abide in His love. We obey His word. And in verse 12, Jesus highlights a specific commandment that we are supposed to obey. Listen again, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you spend any time studying John's writings in the New Testament, you will quickly learn that love for one another is central to John's understanding of Christianity. Our love for God is confirmed, you might say, by our love for other believers. I want you to hear me real clearly on this next sentence. Without love for other Christians, the world has no reason to believe us when we say we love God. If we say we love God, but we don't love the brothers, the love of God does not abide in us, John says. Remember what Jesus said in in chapter 13, here in John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if you want to sum up the Christian life with one commandment, just one, what is that one commandment? Love one another. That's what Jesus would say. That's what John says. And what makes this passage so helpful is that Jesus does not leave love undefined. The call to love others in verse 12 is not ambiguous. It has a pattern. Notice Jesus' words and listen for the pattern of love here. This is my commandment, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. You see, it's a very specific kind of love. Christ's love for us becomes the pattern after which we love one another. Now, almost instantly, someone is objecting in their mind. That's impossible. We cannot love other people like Jesus loved us. Jesus' love is redemptive. He died as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sin. And we can't love other people like that. And on some level, I get it. 
The love of Christ is absolutely unique. It's utterly unique. It's redemptive. I understand. But don't let the uniqueness of Christ's sacrifice obscure the reality of what he is teaching in this text. While we cannot redeem other people by our love, we can picture the fact that Christ's love redeems sinners like us. That's the point. As I have loved you, love one another. We can picture the power of Christ's love by the way that we love. How, you say? How can we do that? By following the pattern of Jesus' love for us. Here's what I mean. Just think of a couple of examples. Jesus' love is sacrificial. He suffered loss so that we would gain. By the Spirit, you and I can pattern our love after His. We can endure loss so that others gain. Jesus' love was selfless. He preferred His church. He laid aside His own interests, glory, in order to prefer us so that we would be saved. By the Spirit, you and I can follow the same pattern. We can count others as more significant than ourselves. Do you, do you see Jesus' point here? I hope you see Jesus' point because it's essential to the Christian life. This is his commandment, that we love one another. How? Just as he has loved us. And this kind of Christian love is a powerful testimony to the world. Notice the connection that Jesus makes in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love is the greatest expression of love. To some degree, even the world recognizes this. Which is why so many of the great works of literature and storytelling all end in the same way. (laughs) The hero loses his life in order that other people would live. So on some level, the world recognizes that sacrificial love is the greatest kind of love. But it's only Christians who understand that truth to its fullest significance. It's only Christians who understand it. Verse 13, in other words, applies to us most directly. We are Jesus' friends because he laid down his life for us. We, the church, we know the power of sacrificial love, not from a great story, but from the one true story, the gospel. So of all people, we know the depth and power of sacrificial love because we're the friends whom Jesus has laid his life down for. And because we know the power of Christ's love, our lives are changed. Our lives are transformed. We live now not for ourselves, but for Christ. This is Jesus' point in verse 14. Look at what he says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus at this point. He's not saying that you become his friend By obeying him. Obedience does not create friendship with Jesus. But it does characterize those who are Jesus' friends. It doesn't create the friendship, but it does characterize the person. We love others because we have been loved by Christ himself. Again, that's the proper order of Jesus' teaching. He laid down his life for us, verse 13. And therefore, verse 14, we obey his commandments. And the point that I want to emphasize to you this morning is that this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial love that lays down its life for others, that prefers others, 
This kind of love testifies to the world of what Christ has done. So let's go back to something I said just a moment ago. Even the world recognizes that sacrificial love is the greatest expression of love. Even the world recognizes that to some degree. This is why nearly every great work of literature culminates with that kind of love. Some kind of sacrifice. So the world on some level recognizes the greatness of sacrificial love. But here's the key. The world does not know why that kind of love is so great. So the world knows that it ought to admire sacrificial love, but the world doesn't understand why that admiration is deserved. Do you follow me here? The world knows, I ought to love that. I ought to admire that. That's compelling, but I don't know why. We know why. We understand why. Christians, of all people, understand that sacrificial love is compelling because it's pointing us to the greatest love of all, Christ's love for his church. This is why love for one another is the central commandment of the Christian life. Of all the virtues, love for others communicates something about the glory of the gospel. So, when a congregation of Christians loves one another with sacrifice and selflessness, we're not simply being nice or kind. We are adorning our gospel preaching with gospel character. We're matching our words with action so that how we live confirms what we say. So that how we love authenticates, you might say, what we proclaim. Do you see the testifying aspect of Christian love? It's not just sentimentality or kindness. We're not called to love one another so that business meetings don't go bad. We're called to love one another because it's essential to our witness. The world has no reason to believe that we love God if we don't love one another. So as we love one another, we show the world, we show the world how Christ has loved his church. Listen, for churches like ours, churches that rightly prioritize preaching and doctrine, this is a sermon that we cannot hear too much. In no way do I want to minimize truth. We cannot be any less firm on truth. But at the same time, every principled stand for truth is only as powerful as the love that adorns it. Every principled stand for truth is only as powerful as the love that adorns it. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. So I'm just going to ask you some questions. Do you regularly pray for God to give you greater love for your fellow Christians? Love is a fruit of the Spirit, remember? So we ought to pray for God's word to bear that fruit in our lives? Are you consistently looking for opportunities to serve others, even if those opportunities don't match the things that you particularly enjoy? Are you quick to lay aside your preference in order to prioritize what other Christians prefer? Are you careful to not insist on your own way? 
Are you harboring something against a fellow Christian? Something that you know you ought to forgive and let go? Or something that you know you ought to go and talk to them about? Are you harboring something? Christ laid down his life for us. That's the greatest expression of love. And that's the message that we're going to preach until our last breath. If I'm here in 10 years and you're here on a Sunday, you know what I'm going to be preaching? That Jesus died for sinners. Same message. We're going to preach that message until our last breath. But that gospel preaching has to be matched with gospel character. Preaching without love is just symbols clanging in a room. Christian love testifies to Christ's sacrifice. So, so how are you and I, how are you and I striving to bear this essential fruit of loving other Christians? We covered a lot of ground this morning, right? We've talked about obedience to Christ and love for one another. These are essential truths for being a Christian. Jesus is giving us a master class in discipleship. And that class culminates in the third perspective. This one helps to keep all of those essential truths about obedience and love, keep them all in their proper order. Let's look at verses 15 to 17 for the third perspective on testimony here. The Christian life testifies to Christ's grace. The Christian life testifies to Christ's grace. In verse 15, Jesus points to the dramatic change that's happened in the disciples' lives. They've gone from servants to friends. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So the disciples are in a privileged position. That's Jesus' point. By his grace, Jesus has revealed the Father's will to them. He has spoken very clearly of his death and resurrection. His teaching has taught them about the character of God. His mighty deeds have displayed for them the power of God. And that level of revelation is not something that a servant would receive, Jesus says. That level of personal revelation speaks of friendship. And and that's what the disciples have become. They are Jesus' friends. Now, I imagine that there would have been a temptation creeping up on the disciples at this point, because it's the temptation that would have been creeping up on me. Think of how easy it would have been for the disciples to hear verse 15 and then to start thinking, I must be a pretty significant person then. I mean, I'm friends with the Messiah. I am friends with the son of David. I am friends with the the man who's going to reign on the throne of God's kingdom. I've been let in on the will of God. I must be a pretty significant person. You can imagine how easy the disciples would have started to think that way because that's how we would have started to think. And so Jesus counters that temptation by giving the disciples a resounding reminder of why they are his friends. And it's not because they did anything. Look at verse 16. Why are the disciples Jesus' friends? Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You should note, first of all, that verse 16 applies in a specific way 
to these 11 disciples here with Jesus. They were uniquely chosen and appointed by Christ to be his first messengers. The apostles of the New Testament, along with the prophets of the Old Testament, are foundational to the church's life. In fact, the fruit that Jesus envisions in verse 16 is likely more disciples, more converts. As these original disciples go out into the world, their witness to Christ and their love for one another bears fruit in the growth of the church. So think about how rapidly the church grows in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fulfillment of verse 16 in a very specific way. Jesus chose these 11 men to serve as the foundation pieces for his church. So we shouldn't go too quickly and miss how verse 16 applies uniquely to the apostles. At the same time, we should also not go too quickly and miss how verse 16 applies to us and to everyone who knows Jesus Christ by faith. Ask yourself this question, friends. Why are we disciples? Because Christ, in his grace, chose us and called us to himself. Why are we Jesus' friends? Because Christ revealed himself to us in the gospel by his Holy Spirit. Why is there spiritual fruit in our lives? Because Christ's grace is so powerful, he bears the fruit in us that he requires of us. Why do we have access to God in prayer? Because Christ, in his grace, unites us to himself so that we pray in his name, shaped after his character. In short, everything about us as Christians owes entirely to the grace of Christ. Everything. Christians are not self-made people. Our very existence is the illustration of verse 16. We did not choose Christ. He, by his grace, chose us so that we would bear fruit for his glory. And I want to be crystal clear on this point. The truth so clearly summarized in verse 16 is the heartbeat of the Christian life. What do we have that we did not receive? Nothing. We are what we are only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this point is more than theologically necessary. It's also practically helpful. I mean, to put it frankly, verse 16 keeps the Christian life in its proper order. When we remember that Christ chose us by His grace, everything retains its proper perspective. Everything in the Christian life stays in the right order. I mean, just look back through this chapter and think about all the things Jesus has commanded us to do. They only stay in their proper understanding when we read them through the lens of verse 16. Why are we able to bear fruit and prove to be Jesus' disciples? Because His grace united us to Him by faith. Why are we able to abide in Jesus' love? Because in His grace, Christ first loved us. Why do we obey his commandments? Because in his grace, Christ called us to himself and made us his friends, and Jesus' friends obey him. Why do we love one another in the church? Because we first experience the love of God for us in the gospel, and empowered by that love, we love others. You see, when we understand verse 16, the entire Christian life stays in its proper order. Because of verse 16, we can preach obedience without undermining grace and we can emphasize grace without minimizing obedience 
Verse 16 keeps it in its proper order. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you. Friends, that truth is like the north star of the Christian life. It keeps everything on track. It keeps everything on the right heading. The heading of glorifying God by faithfully obeying Jesus' word. It's fitting then that this section ends with Jesus coming back to the central command of the Christian life. Look at verse 17. This summarizes not only John 15, but the entirety of what it means to live as a Christian. Verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. All of Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches, all of John 15, is really driving to this point. That empowered by His grace and dependent upon His provision, we would love one another. When Christians live that way, we testify to the incredible grace of Christ. When Christians love one another, we use our lives to tell the world that Christ's grace is so powerful, so effective, so amazing, so transforming that it changes us from rebels to followers and from servants to friends. So let's make that our prayer as we close and as we go out today. Let's make this our prayer that we would abide in the true vine, Jesus Christ, and that we would do so by obeying His word, depending upon His grace, and thus testify to the world that we do belong to God through Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, please help us. Please come and bear fruit by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word so that our lives are transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. God, please bear fruit in us that we would abide in Christ's love by obeying his commandments and thus prove to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. Help us, Father, to adorn our gospel preaching with gospel character. Help us to take very principled stands for truth that are matched, Father, with very real and tangible lives of love. Forgive us, Father, where we have emphasized one at the expense of the other. We pray, Father, for your will to be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing in response.